Welcome to In Good Faith. Chelsea and I are so excited to be with a dear friend, a new friend of mine. And I got to be honest, I'm proud to say that. This is my first time meeting the legendary Jamar Tisby, who is a hero of mine. And so I am so excited for this conversation. Jamar is such an important person to the Smith family and his writings and his content has meant so much to us, to our children, to our family, to our church. Jamar is a historian of race and religion. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Color of Compromise, which changed our life, how to fight racism, courageous Christianity, and the journey towards racial justice. And he is a wonderful man, a beautiful human being. And Jamar, thank you so much for being on In Good Faith. Listen, I am thanking God for whoever canceled because there's no way I could be anybody's (laughs) first choice. I've seen the guests you've had on this and I'm like, how did I sneak in here? So somebody must have canceled, pulled out the last minute. I don't care. I'm just thrilled to be here with y'all. This is such a thrill for me. Thank you. Chelsea might be your biggest fan, just so you know. Very good. Very good. So good to meet y'all. So good to meet you. dive into it just at the very beginning and then I'll keep fangirling the whole episode because that's just, (laughs) I'm so excited. But what I don't know is how did you get into becoming a race historian, particularly as it relates to the church? I don't really know much of your origin story. It was necessity and survival. I definitely didn't start out with some life plan of going into racial justice advocacy. I was just in situations and spaces and contexts that required a response to racism, to white supremacy. So I grew up in the Chicago area. And what was so interesting about that is I grew up in a very multi-ethnic context. And so that can sort of lull you into this false sense of being post-racial. Now, I'm a 90s kid in the Chicago area. That's why Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls, you know, there's no conversation about who the goat is. I'm sorry. I may have just alienated a whole bunch of listeners. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So that was my context. And, you know, we wouldn't have used the the term post-racial at the time, but it was the idea that, oh, we got all these people hanging out in proximity together. Now, they didn't live together and very few of us went to school together. So it sort of covered up the issues that were there. But then I moved down south after I graduated from the University of Notre Dame. I joined Teach for America and became a sixth grade science and social studies teacher which is a God thing because there's no way in the world that I was setting out to be a middle school teacher. My mom was a teacher for 37 years. I saw what it was like and was like, nah, that's not for me. God laughed. And I ended up (laughs) in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side. And it was supposed to be a two-year gig. It's been 13 years in the Delta, five years in Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm still here. First of all, I have to say teachers are heroes. I think they do not get paid (laughs) enough. Whatever they get paid should be significantly more. They should get paid what the college football coaches get paid. That's my theory. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Were you growing up in a religious family in Chicago? That was an interesting part. So my family was not especially religious growing up. There was no hostility toward religion. It just wasn't on the radar. This is a funny part of my biography. Most people don't know. I was baptized in a Southern Baptist church. 
and it was a uh, baptism of convenience. I was eight years old. My mom was like, you know, it's a good thing for kids to get baptized at least. And, and that was about the extent of the thought that went into it from my perspective. But the church was literally across the street. Like we used to have snowball fights in the parking lot. And so that became the church where I got baptized. But I, I didn't really make my faith my own till high school. And it was this dorky white guy who had an incredible jump shot who became my friend and invited me to his white evangelical youth group. And that's where I had this classic conversion story of saying the sinner's prayer and all of that stuff. And that's how I became a Christian. But that's the context, right? So I'm one of the only, if not the only, in some instances, black person in this white evangelical context. So race was always part of that like religious journey for me. And then when I got down to the Delta, the justice part just hits you. So the Delta is just, it's stark. The analogy I use is like, first of all, I'm not good at math. We, we parted ways in, in about sixth grade and just haven't really been on speaking <laughs> terms since then. It's my favorite way to say it. I'm with you heart and soul. <laughs> so it's never come easy for me. And what frustrated me so much is like in the math textbook, they'll introduce a new concept at the beginning of a chapter and they'll give you these examples that seem so straightforward. But then you get to the practice problems. It's like, I don't know how to do this. This isn't like the example they showed me. The example was so much clearer. Well, in a way, the Delta is that example at the beginning of the chapter where everything here is so clear, so stark, so laid out from issues of racism, poverty, Christian nationalism, but also the beauty. Let's not jump past the beauty of a place like the Delta. This is where the blues were born, which is, I think, a, a sort of prophetic lament in a way, right? This is where you have incredible mm -hmm. activists such as Fannie Lou Hamer coming out of you know, it's like a pilgrimage to come here because you can almost feel the spirits of the ancestors in the air. And, and that wow. was an environment that caused me to start thinking deeply about what did my faith say about issues of justice, in particular about poverty and racism. Can I tell you about my town real quick? Please, because I'm an ignorant West Coast girl. And when you say the Delta, I actually yeah. can't picture geographically where you're referring to. Right. Okay. Let me nerd out because, again, I was a science teacher. So the, the Mississippi Delta is not actually a delta. The delta is that fan of soil where the, the Mississippi River meets the Gulf of Mexico down by New Orleans. Okay. But yeah. they call this place the, the Mississippi Delta. It's actually an alluvial plain, a flood plain. And so the delta refers to that region of the Mississippi River on both sides that floods. And it leaves all these rich deposits of soil, which is why... It makes for great cotton country, which tells the story okay. of this whole nation. So I live about an hour south of Memphis on the Arkansas side. The Delta, you know, extends basically from Memphis down to the Gulf of Mexico on both sides, that farming country. So that's where I am. And my town is a direct result of that cotton country history. So we are 75 percent black, a percentage that is rising as white people who have money continue to move out. The county's been losing population since the 1970s when the last large manufacturing company closed down. The poverty rate is over twice the state average. It stands at about 41% of people at or below the poverty line. That's even higher for younger kids. And all of that brings with it incredible hardships, right? From healthy food to health care to uh, a properly funded education system. You can go down the list. All of that can be traced back to 
sharecropping to race-based chattel slavery to issues like convict leasing and, and all of these things that we maybe read about or have seen in a museum, it's clear here. It's stark. It's tangible. And it changes you. And that's why I couldn't not start to think about these issues of race and justice. And so there you saw it clear as the example in the beginning of the math book. That's right. That's exactly right. It was the undiluted clarity of the effects of the history of racism in our country. And you saw it start there in front of you. And you just thought, I I can't not do something about that. Is that what I hear you saying? That's a perfect summary of it in a lot briefer way than I put it. (laughs) I'm married to an expander. Okay. (laughs) There we go. Uh, You're used to this. Yes. But it's one of those things like my commute to the University of Mississippi where I got my PhD was literally through cotton fields on a hazy, humid day in the Delta. You can almost like see the ghosts of the ancestors picking cotton. And I want to say this about cotton country. It's haunting and it's beautiful. Mm. I mean, it's fiber. It's fields of white balls of fiber that you never see anywhere else. And you're at first captivated by the beauty because it's it's so unique and they go on for acres and acres. Then you remember the history Mm. and the racial capitalism. And all of this stuff. So I could go on and on, but that's that's what was formative for me. So you graduated from Notre Dame, became a sixth grade teacher. And then at what point did you decide to go back to school to get your doctorate? So I was such a, a kind of nerdy kid. I knew back in high school, I would end up in seminary. Like, I don't know any other high schooler that's like, oh, I can't wait to get to seminary. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So it was in the back of my mind for a decade. So I was a teacher for four years, and then I was a principal for three years of, of middle school, grades five through eight. And then in 2011, I decided to go full-time for this seminary degree. And that's when I moved to Jackson, Mississippi. And that's where things really started to get interesting because... That's when I started what became The Witness. It's when I started writing and speaking publicly about race. And it really changed my life in terms of my public ministry and public work. Well, and that public ministry and that public work has had a profound impact on this West Coast couple, let me tell you. And your willingness to dig into the history for everyone listening. We are three Christians sitting here and wanting to wrap our arms around And Jamar, you've helped this family wrap our arms around the real history, not only of our country, but of our faith. And that incredible revelation has brought us and our entire family into a place of a deeper sense of responsibility, but a deeper sense of also opportunity. Mm. I want to thank you for that. You've changed the arc of our children's life. And for those who haven't picked up The Color of Compromise on Amazon Prime, and this is absolutely unapologetically asking that you would consider to go watch. We have watched it multiple times. We've encouraged our entire congregation to watch it because in a matter of just a few hours, you can get a snapshot of uh, the church's history and where we are in this country in such a profound way. Yeah, I have to give you my true confession. And that is, I don't know how you got our name when you first published Color of Compromise, but somehow we got sent a copy of the book. <laughs> and um, well, good until you hear my story, which is embarrassing to admit. It sat on the side of my bed and I started to read it. You are a brilliant writer. The way you write yeah. is astounding. And I got about halfway through the first chapter and I will be honest what my response was. My response was, I don't know if I want to read this. It's just insulting the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't think it's going to do any good to go back and dredge up our painful, ugly history. And I don't know if I can just feed myself with the bride of Christ. For those listening, that's a term used yeah, for, thank to you, describe for the, church. the church, by the way. <laughs> and so and then about a year later, it was still sitting by my bed and I picked it up again and I felt the Holy Spirit just kind of prompt me mm. in that moment to pick it up again and reminded me that I love my husband dearly and desperately. But the reason I love him more fiercely than anybody else is because I actually see his weaknesses mm. and I know who he is. And seeing and understanding those weaknesses enable me to love him fuller and better. And so mm. I then picked it up for a second time and devoured it in just a few short days. And my life was changed by it. I've never really heard this story before, to be honest. Really? Yeah, this is interesting. Look at just not- two confessions with Jamar yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a podcast. So when you wrote The Color of Compromise and as you began studying in all of your research, what was it about the topic of going through and revealing the history of racism and complicity with racism in the Christian church that made you decide that that was going to be a key step in fighting the racism that you're experiencing now? I actually thought my second book, How to Fight Racism, was going to be my first because I was raring to go. I was like, we don't talked about this enough. We got to go. We got to do something. We got to take action. But then in various conversations and looking at everything that was happening in the world, this is like 2017, 2018, when I'm thinking about the proposal, it occurred to me that people really wouldn't understand my urgency unless they understood where that urgency came from. And for me, that urgency, what MLK called the fierce urgency of now in his I Have a Dream speech, that fierce urgency of now actually came from what happened back then. So it was my study of history that compelled me to want to take action in the present. It was learning about Emmett Till's, not just his murder, but his trial, where 12 white men knew they were guilty, acquitted them, joked that it wouldn't have taken them that long if they hadn't stopped for soda, and then his murderers turned around and sold their story to a magazine for thousands of dollars, confessing to what they did, but couldn't be convicted anymore, right? It came from learning about the economic exploitation of race-based chattel slavery, where they would put Black people on display at these auction blocks. They would oil up their bodies. They would clean them up, even though they hadn't taken any sort of care before just so that they could sell them to these slave traders and slave owners, right? The the commodification of black people. All of that, I mean, I could go on and on and on. All of those stories were to me the background, the backdrop, the context to where we are today. And I was concerned that in our urgency to do something about the problem, if we didn't understand the problem well, we couldn't have the right solution. So the analogy I use in the book, if you go to the doctor's office and before you can say anything, the doctor says, take two of these and call me in the morning. You would justifiably say, wait a minute, <laughs> I, I didn't tell you what was wrong. 
you didn't ask me any of my symptoms. You don't know if my leg is broken or if I got a stuffy nose and you're already prescribing something. So I didn't want that to happen in this racial justice work. If you want to work towards solutions, if you want to be part of the solution, then you have to understand the problem deeply. And for me, that was understanding it from a historical perspective. That's where this book, The Color of Compromise, comes out of. When I was reading through your book, what was so shocking to me was actually when you came to George Whitfield, who's always been a hero of mine. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the history of him actually encouraging slavery in the state of Georgia, the colony of Georgia at the time, in order for him to profit to pay for an orphanage. And he still did great things, but just coming to that honest realization that our history isn't perfect. And I grew up in the way of, well, the Northern churches were great and they were just trying to solve slavery. And it's just a Southern, and in my mind, what history I told myself justified my complacency and reading the real history of the Northern churches not allowing Black members or Black bishops or pastors or leaders and realizing even the history of the Black church and the white church. So for me, can I say your formula worked? Mm. Your, I needed to understand the That's problem right. in the history to really be able to dive into the solution and where we're at currently. So, And I think it's only begun to work. Right. It's only just the beginnings, I believe, of your voice and your perspective and the work that you have done, Jamar, to help the church be who she really is and not to pretend to be something that she hopes to be or she thinks she is, but who she really is. And it's funny because that is in fact the approach we take to our individual lives. The gospel informs us to be very true to where we really are. The first question God ever asked man in the Genesis account is, where are you? Where are you? And I think the color of compromise was your beautiful dissertation of saying, well, this is where we are. And this is how we got here. And I must say, and I've told you this offline, we had such a monumental Zoom call together and I was so deeply impacted. And I went running to my wife to tell her the impact that that hour and a half had on me personally felt so connected to you spiritually, but I mentioned your demeanor, particularly in the video presentations and the episodes that's available to people around the color of compromise, because I was taken aback. It was so like, this is what happened. This is what I've studied. This is the research. This is the outcome. That's why we're here. And we can change this. It just kept hitting me and hitting me and hitting me. And I think both Chelsea and I would like to think as a white couple that we have been intentional about putting ourselves in situations and circumstances that are diverse. But this content in the way that God asked you to deliver it was disarming and also very, very telling. Can you speak to a little bit about that? I think it's the power of history. First of all, it's biblical, right? Think about all the times in the Bible that God says, remember, 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 remember. Remember who you really are and where you are, but also remember God's promises, right? Like memory is so important. And for so much of U.S. history, this important memory has been shrouded, has been hidden, has been deliberately obfuscated and changed. And that is a tragedy because there is a sense in which history is our identity. Who are your people? That's a real Southern thing. Whenever I meet somebody, they ask in some way, shape, or form, who are your people? Who are you kin to? As the Black folks say, who are you related to? 
do you know such and such person, right? And the idea is what are those connections that link you to the broader story of our community? That's what history is, right? The other part about history is its narrative. Woe to the history teacher that makes history boring. How could history (laughs) be boring? Wow. History is the story of us. It's just telling stories. And so that's where I think the demeanor in the video comes through. I think the stories speak for themselves. I think there's incredible power simply in saying that in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which is a group of white Anglican men, so Christians, came together because there were plantation owners complaining about missionaries preaching the gospel to enslaved black people. And plantation owners were saying, hey, they're getting all these wacky ideas about liberation and equality. This is an issue. So the Virginia Assembly came together and said, okay, we'll pass a law saying that baptism does not emancipate an enslaved person of African, Native American, or mixed race descent. And so you have these three strands of race, religion, and politics all intermingling to enforce a system of white domination and racism. And this is 1667 before the foundation of the political entity known as the United States. Now, we sit with that, sit with the weight of that, and where it has led us in the 21st century, the fact that these three areas still, race, religion, and politics, are intertwined, and you cannot adequately address the justice issues in one area without talking about all of them. And Chelsea, to your point, the thing that happened was a humility to be able to receive the history. And and so many people still don't have that sort of tender heart to receive it. But when you do and you feel the weight of those stories, I think the spirit works. I think our consciences work to say we must do something. We must do something. And that's that's where we're at. I know we're jumping around here to cover as much content as we possibly can. Can you give us your definition of white Christian nationalism? Yes. So I'm borrowing from sociologists here, especially Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. I recommend their book, Taking America Back for God. And they talk about white Christian nationalism as a sociopolitical ideology that is more shaped by the culture than by Christ, to put it in certain terms, right? So when we think about sort of cultural artifacts or cultural signifiers of white Christian nationalism, this is the American flag in pulpits at church. It's celebrating the 4th of July like a liturgical holiday almost. It's basically elevating the Constitution as an almost divinely inspired document that you cannot mess with. It is saying that the United States is the apple of God's eye and that the fate of the church is wrapped up with the faith of the political entity known as the United States. It's that conflation. This goes beyond patriotism. This includes ideas of xenophobia and patriarchy and racism. It's the idea that what made America great in their imagined minds is that it was led and controlled and ruled by white Christian Protestant almost exclusively male people. That's the subtext. They won't say that. That's the subtext. But that's the implication of what it is. And here's the rub with white Christian nationalism. When you point it out, people think you're attacking the faith itself because a white Christian nationalist expression of religion is all they've ever known. And in their minds, it's not white Christian nationalism. It's just Christianity. That's what we're up against. Friends, I mean, if you listen 
to that clip right there. And if you listen to it multiple times a day, it will begin to transform the way you walk with Jesus. Just that answer. I've got another question I got to ask you. I know we're jumping around. When I asked Jamar Tisby, what does it mean to love your neighbor? What's your response? Cornel West said, justice is what love looks like in public. So in white evangelical Christianity, there's always been an emphasis on personal piety, personal holiness, you know, living a, a, a righteous life as far as your own personal morality. There are issues with certain stances that are more political and cultural than biblical, but there's always been that sort of individual emphasis on living a righteous and holy Christian life. What is missing has often been the emphasis on issues of social injustice, community-wide injustice. It's been selective. It's not that there's no understanding of social justice issues, but it's selective, like abortion, whatever one's stance on it, right? But that's seen as a legitimate social issue that Christians can talk about. But when it comes to issues like racism, that's not seen in the same way, right? So what does loving one's neighbor look like? Well, the context matters. So in the context of much of white evangelicalism in the United States, loving one's neighbor has to look like understanding the policies and the systems that harm my neighbor and doing something about those. And this is critical. Y'all, this is critical because we have these, you know, share these cups of coffee with with a person of a different race or ethnicity. We have these pulpit swaps and choir swaps. We say, you know, some of my best friends are black. Listen, <laughs> all of that's great. Don't stop doing that. But it's necessary, but not sufficient. All the cups of coffee in the world aren't going to change the fact that black women die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white people. All of those great joint church services aren't going to do anything about the racial wealth gap which is, traces all the way back to the economic exploitation of race-based chattel slavery, right? So we have to work on a system and a policy basis as an expression of what it means to love our neighbor. Wow. I want to get to one of the last questions I want to ask you. In your latest book, How to Fight Racism, you obviously give us so many practical, tangible tools to begin to fight racism in our own context, in our own worlds, whether you're in the Mississippi Delta or you live on the West Coast or you are around the world. Can I ask a very personal question? For Listeners right now who feel almost immediately out of their depth, embarrassed, already a little nervous, even listening to this episode, which obviously is an indication, most likely I'm describing a white person. (laughs) I'm starting to laugh. I don't know why, because I don't want to cry. What would you say to the listener right now who is willing to admit I'm ignorant. I avoid the topic. I don't know what to do. But in listening to these 30 minutes, I know I must do something. That is an unfair question to ask you. I realize that. But what would be your response to that person? 
I'm going to address it on two levels, the, the philosophical and the practical. On the philosophical level, I talk about 2 Corinthians 7, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. They've done something wrong. He corrects them. He's worried about their response. Are they going to listen to me anymore? Nobody likes being told they're wrong. But then in his letter, they respond positively. They accept his word of correction and try to change. And then he rejoices because he said, I don't rejoice that you were grieved, but you had a godly grief, a godly grief that leads to repentance. So what I say, this conversation is not about white guilt. It's it's not about making someone feel just sort of overall bad for their existence. It's about a godly grief that leads to change. So there should be a sorrowfulness. I don't know how you hear about a lynching and, and you're not sorrowful. And I don't know how you understand the racialized aspects of it without realizing that whiteness plays a huge part in it, right? The question is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that sorrow? What do you do with that grief? And hopefully it leads you to change or want to change things. The second thing is that it is a big problem. So feeling overwhelmed is probably the right way to feel because there's no sector of our society, politics, economics, education, health, you name it, the church, oh Lord, the church where racism hasn't had a massive, massive impact, right? And so it is a big problem. So this feeling of overwhelm, it's natural. But as with anything else, it's one step at a time. If you're on a health journey, if you're on a mental health journey, it's one day at a time, one step at a time. So that's the philosophical level. The last thing I want to talk about is on the practical level. I'll be brief because I actually wrote a whole book on it. My second book, How to Fight Racism, is explicitly designed to answer that question, what do we do? We've all been in these situations where we've listened to a podcast, we've read a book, we've heard a talk about racism, but we're left with that question, what do we do? And what I propose is tons of practical steps in the book, but the most important part is what I call the arc of racial justice. And that's an acronym that stands for awareness, relationships, commitment. I think you need all three of those, like legs of a stool, in order to have a stable foundation upon which to build your racial justice efforts, the arc of racial justice. And can you expand a little bit on what awareness, relationship, and commitment is? It's very basic because it's something I had to be able to remember, so it had to be simple. The arc of racial justice, awareness, it's everything you do to increase your knowledge and information about race, racism, white supremacy, listening to podcasts, watching documentaries, going to museums. It's all the stuff that you did in 2020 <laughs> in the midst of the <laughs> George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor uprisings. But that's, again, necessary but not sufficient. So relationships from a faith perspective, we can understand all reconciliation is relational. That God, when God wanted to reconcile a people, didn't send a tweet or a TikTok video. God sent his son, Jesus, a real person to embody relationships and bring reconciliation about that way. And in all of our racial justice efforts, we cannot go around the fact that this is about people. So relationships talks to all of the ways that we need to intentionally cultivate uh, relationships with people who are different from us in all sorts of ways to build the kind of relationships and coalitions that we need to fight racism. But again, the sort of evangelical subculture says, well, as long as we've got people of different color in the pews, we're good. But that's not all there is to it. 
As I said before, we need to work on the systems and the policies and the institutions. That's where commitment comes in. That's all of the ways that we change the levers of how society works. And that's not just on a political level. That's not just at the state and the national level. That's about your church has policies. Your workplace has policies. Even your family has traditions and unspoken policies. And how can you change the actual sort of configuration of the thing, the way it's put together in order to lead to more equity? I love that you bring up that policies aren't just political because yes, they are, but so many of us feel unempowered to change political systems other than writing a letter or voting right. every two or four years. But there are policies and systems in, in every workplace, in some formal and some informal, in every family, in every society, in every volunteer organization, every church, every nonprofit that we can get involved in and really begin to change and look at and examine. And I love when you talk about the arc that it's cyclical. You don't do one, yes, check off yes. that box, do another, check off that box, but it's a continual cycle that we find ourselves in. And the more awareness we have, then the deeper our relationships can be and our conversations can be richer. And then we can actually see some of those policies and systems that need to change that should drive us back to getting more awareness and learning more. Is that, that's, am I saying that right? That's precisely, precisely right. And let me give one free tip to your listeners, because I love Judah and Chelsea so much. Please. If you want to take action, like right now today, do this one thing. Get a piece of paper and a pen, or you can do it on your screen and and a computer, and write a racial justice action plan. Seems overwhelming, but this is where the arc comes in. Go through each of those categories, awareness, relationships, commitment, and say for the next three months, that's all, not a year, not three years, not five, three months, What am I going to do to intentionally build my awareness around racial justice? What am I going to do to intentionally build bridges of relationship with different kinds of people? What am I going to do to intentionally change policies and systems within my sphere of influence to lead to more equity and justice? And you can go through the book, How to Fight Racism for Ideas. But even if you just had that, what I verbalized, it's just a sounding, even me, somebody who does this like all day, every day, we're not intentional about it, right? The difference between a dream and a goal is a plan. What is your plan for racial justice? That simple step could mean a life-altering, trajectory-changing decision for you. So write your racial justice action plan. I love that. And here's our commitment to you, to each other, to our listeners, that we have three teenagers who are all in public charter schools and they're very passionate about making a difference. But I love you said the difference between a dream and a goal is a plan. We're going to sit together with the Smith family. That is our commitment. And all of us are going to write out our action plan Racial for the next three months. Plan. Between January and March, what's the Smith family going to do? And I love that scripture that says, man plans his way and the Lord directs his steps. Look at that, yeah. And I've heard a preacher say, you know, when you plan your way, that even more so God can dictate and determine your daily steps. And I think there's a beauty there, a convergence even in our relationship with God. I think there's a beauty and an honor to making a plan. That is so life-giving. And Jamar, I can never thank you enough. Our only request is this, that we do this again on In Good Faith. Anytime. We do have a tradition on In Good Faith, and that is that we love to close in prayer. Oh, that's great. Uh, Just to pray over the conversation and listeners. Would you be open to doing that? No pressure (sighs) if you don't want to, Judah, I can (laughs) handle it. But I am jumping out of my seat to pray about this and with y'all. That'd be great. Holy God, we are honored that you would take care and attention for us, the creator of the universe. 
you got a lot of things to do, but you really, really, really do care about us in the fine-grained, granular detail of our lives, right down to the attitudes and the actions that we have toward other people. Lord, you know the secret thoughts of our hearts. You know how we were raised. You know the comments that we've let slide or that we've said. You know our attitudes. God, would you revolutionize our love for others, our love for you, even our love for ourselves that we might have an appropriately high view of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, that we, the people looking in the mirror, we're those people, and then that should transform how we look at other people. God, we're asking for a divine intervention for racial justice in our land. Now is the time. You've given us only this moment, God, and we're asking and expecting you to move, make a movement of your Holy Spirit to transform our world and our society and our nation, but especially, Lord, your church. Oh, God, purify our church, and may we be the headlight and not the taillight in this journey toward racial justice. Strengthen us, give us courage, and give us hope in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jamar. That was amazing. Incredible. Thank you all. I'm blessed to interact with y'all. This has been a presentation of OBB Sound, SB Projects, and Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chelsea Smith, Judah Smith, Michael D. Ratner, Scott Ratner, Elias Tanner, Scooter Braun, Scott Manson, James Shin, and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Grace Delia. Co-produced by Kyle Venuya of SB Projects. Produced by Lauren LaGrasso and Serena Reagan of Cadence 13. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Adam Masias. Original composition by Colin Gilliard. Production support from Rachel Cruz. OBB Sound is an OBB media company. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.